In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. another week in the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical solutions to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today, and especially in our modern world, in a modern industrial age, a world which is becoming much more industrialised. We are moving forward and forward, and we must answer the call of God in the midst of our ordinary circumstances. When we read St. Jose Maria Escriva, uh, in the work, in the work, regarding work, and he says, your ordinary work and contact with God takes place where your fellow men are, your yearnings, your work, and your affections are. There you have your daily encounter with Christ. In the midst of this, and the most material things of the earth, that we must sanctify ourselves, serving God and all mankind. And this week, I brought on the Catholic Toolbox Show a good friend of mine, and uh, um, a very, very uh, motivational friend of mine, Robert Bacci. Welcome aboard. Thank you, George. Thank you for having me. Um, it, it was a very good introduction with your um, movie-like um, screen um, entrance. So I feel like I'm a movie star now. So thank you again for the opportunity, <laughs> George. But I feel privileged. We that conversation, Robert, and now I think it's time for people to benefit from these uh, conversations that we sometimes have had. You know, early in the mornings, you know, on Sunday morning at La Renaissance and uh, Cafe, uh, good career discussions, good uh, aspirations. I think it's time to put it live on air here uh, for people to listen. So for those who don't know you, uh, do you want to start off by introducing yourself and, 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 and a bit about your career journey and everything else uh, regarding that? Thank you, George. Thank you for that introduction. So... Um, I was hoping to have two parts of this. One is my story and two, some practical tips. Um, so in opening, um, I believe we all go to school. We're brought up by our families and those around us in a learning um, and a learning to then determine what is our vocation in our life. Now, from my Italian upbringing, my Catholic education um, and those around me, um, there is no hidden secret that anyone that comes from a European um, Middle Eastern background is hardworking in nature. Um, they've come from nothing to a culture in Australia where they're working hard. So I was instilled with virtues of working hard. Um, and if I wind back to my high school age, um, at the age of 14, 
Um, I took on my first job as a part-time at Woolworths. Um, for those of you in another country, that happens to be a supermarket chain in Australia, quite large. Um, and I was definitely a number in a very big organisation. Um, and I was in year 10 at the time. So still in my um, high school age. And I was devoted to the job. And to me, at such a young age, my first lesson was this is not just a means of earning an income. If I treated any job, you know, if I mentally believed that it was simply money, you know, time would go on forever, you know, and I found a way to enjoy what I do. And I kept chasing down work and it, it really was like a snake in a career. But for me, I, I learned very early on, well, what do I like about this job? I like the people. I was there at checkout chic as it's called or cashier teller um, serving, you know, the customer when they're purchasing their groceries. But instead of just being a robot, I got to know the locals, their routine. They would come at the same time, the same day, just like they go to church on Sunday. And for me, it's about the people, the relationships. And I learned very early on that, you know, there's people around me that I can deal with the day-to-day challenges who are my support network. So I learned very early on, you know, well, I had a bad customer. So I would talk to my boss. I would talk to my colleagues. You know, I would have a funny story to tell in the lunchroom. And at a very, very young age, given the challenges on hand, you know, a shoplifter, angry customer, you know, I built a support network and I supported others and I learned what I liked and what I didn't like. I didn't like filling the shelves, but I liked interacting with people. So for me, that leads leads into the first pillar of my story is learn what you like and what you don't like. Because if you don't like it, it no longer becomes a vocation, it becomes a sentence. And in my view, if you're treating your life's work as a sentence, um, you know, you're just spiralling southwards instead of up. Because in our day-to-day lives, we spend more more time in work than we do um, at home. So fast forward a few years, um, I finished year 12 and I started a job at the Sydney cruise ship terminals, um, working as a um, guest logistics personnel. So checking in passengers onto a cruise ship, wheeling people in a wheelchair on and off the ships, um, dispatching coaches on tours, et cetera. And that stemmed from my love of working with people and interacting with others and the love of the travel industry. I got to meet, you know, people from different ships, going on board ships, seeing passengers. It's a big joyous moment when you see people going on a holiday. Sad when they're coming back because it's all over. Um, But that was very good for me with my university studies. So I was studying a Bachelor of Economics at Sydney University at the time. And I happened to be, um, you know, the peak season for cruise ship travel is in the summer months when I had my summer holidays from university. So it suited me perfectly. And I quickly learned my strengths 
so we went from what I liked doing to my strengths and I identified what is my strength. And that was the organisation factor. You know, I liked organising a problem. So getting 2,000 people off a ship in a span of six hours is a problem. Now, if you said to the passengers, there's a door, line up, one, people won't be happy in the experience, and two, it'll probably take more than six hours compared to if you stagger it, you know, you time slot people, you know, you, you stage when the baggage is going off the ship, et cetera. And I like this, but I saw a problem. One, the one main problem is, is, well, the travel industry doesn't pay very well, which is a separate problem and I shouldn't be chasing money, <laughs> but it doesn't pay very well. And the second problem is, is there's not a lot of jobs in the area. Um, it's a very, it's not a very growing industry. Everyone wants to work in it, not a lot of opportunity. So I did what every uni grad did, applied to grad programs um, at various companies. Um, you know, so many manufacturing companies, transport providers, government organisations, government departments. And I did that because that was what we were instilled, you know, through school, through family, you were brought up, you go to uni, you work in a, a bank or a big corporate organisation, you know, because that's what uni people do. So I applied, had interviews, and I happened to be successful with the Linfox graduate program. Who's Linfox? They're a, a large transport company in Australia owned by Lindsay Fox. Um, happened to be across all of Australia and Southeast Asia also. Um, family owned, um, still owned by the Fox family. They're actually... If there's uh, got to be a company to work for in logistics, it's got to be Linfox. As, uh, Correct. That they are the, the top there. <laughs> the owners are actually Catholic, George, believe it or not. Um, and... You know, for me, that wasn't the reason I joined them, but it was the main reason for me is they were a market leader. Yeah. And they prided themselves on being above the law, like have standards above the requirement. So that was something I prided myself in. So I was this young, um, I was 20 at the time, um, this young um, person going into a very big... You started work very early. I mean, it was very the- early. Correct. So I finished year 12 at the age of 17, finished my university degree at the age of 20, started work at Lean Fox at the age of 20. Um, so my career has had a very fast pace. Um, and I think the root cause of all of that timing is having started school at the age of four by my mother um i don't think that's allowed anymore maybe um <laughs> maybe she wanted to get rid of you correct <laughs> that's probably a thing just to, to, to save probably to save on the the child care probably i don't know anyway i'll continue so i started the linfox and it was i went with this perception you know here i'm a grad you know i'm going to do what grads do i didn't know what grads do and came into the Coles MDC, a national distribution centre for Coles. Coles is another supermarket chain in Australia in their warehousing logistics operation in Eastern Creek, which is west of of Sydney. And I was overseeing a shift. So I was a shift manager as a grad, overseeing about 20 to 30 drivers, 
numerous trucks, vehicles delivering to supermarkets. And that's where I started getting challenged with the industry knowledge, unions, people. You know, a truck doesn't deliver itself. There's someone driving it there. There's someone loading the truck. There's someone unloading the truck. And the second you involve blue-collar workers, unions, there tends to be a misalignment. You know, they're trying to make a living with their hourly wage. I'm trying to save costs. Robert loves gets the work done. <laughs> so there's a clear misalignment. So as the work decreases, your staff tend to want to keep that sense of living. So that's a misalignment there. But the one thing I pride myself in that role is learning. You know, my uni degree was no help. I had to learn the industry, learn about different trailers, different trucks, um, fatigue. Um, mass economics is the foundation of all the monetary system that we work in but on a macroscopic level logistics was something where uh, you know moving moving uh, goods from a to b is something you had to learn correct and how did it take you to learn logistics oh for me i have been continually learning in the five years i've worked in it six years nearly now I've been continually learning in logistics and it's by continually asking questions. Always, if you don't know something, ask. And I recall I was at a function with the Fox family and different leaders and I was speaking to the president of HR, her name's Laurie. And he said to me, do you know how we get paid? Do you know how that pallet gets into that racking? Do you know how that job gets to the system for you to do? Do you know how you pay your drivers? And I was like, no, Laurie, I don't actually know a lot of those questions. He's like, well, go and ask. You know, we're all here to help you answer. And he's just such simple bloke, you know. He was like, you know, the, the world's your oyster, Robert. You know, go and find out. You know, if you know a lot of these answers, you'll go places. And I learned from that. And, you know, Lynn Fox was part of the development and they developed us. So I moved from there into warehousing in Lynn Fox Healthcare Logistics, so a pharmaceutical warehouse. Learned everything about warehousing. I won't go too detailed into that. Then I went into safety and compliance. Um, and I wanted to know the pillars of logistics, transport, warehousing, and safety. Safety is important in transport. A truck on a road with a driver behind it is dangerous. It, it is a weapon on the road. If that driver falls asleep, you're dealing with 30 tonnes of machinery that could run someone over. Right. That's right. So I did care a lot about the safety side of things and Lynn Fox um, prided themselves on that. So I, I really got involved. If there was an incident, I went on the road to have a look, you know, to find out what the root cause was, like an investigator. <laughs> and it was at that point in that, you know, that was my last rotation in grad program where my grad program mentor, Michael Ackerman, his name was, um, Lean Methodology Master Black Belt. He, had a, he was talking to me about my career, you know, he was like, Rob, if we don't talk about this, no one will. 
And he was like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, oh, I want to, you know, become a manager, you know, I want to, you know, progress in the, in the organization. He's like, well, do you want to be a operations manager? Do you want to be a safety manager? Or do you want to be a warehousing manager? You know, what do you want to be? It's like, oh, I don't know. You know, he was like, okay, let me draw it better. If we've got, we're starting here, we're ending up here. Now, all roles start at entry level down here. And as he pointed out to me, operations has a shorter graph. Safety, a flatter graph. Compliance, flat. Why is that? And this is in terms of your career progression. It was like, Rob, there's only so many safety people. There's only so many compliance people. Yeah, that's right. Yet in operations, that's all the people, you know. They're 90% of the organisation. So, yes, it's more difficult to manage your drivers, manage your unions, manage your financials. But with the difficulties becomes reward. With your title, your remuneration, responsibility, and your career growth. In safety, people don't leave. There's less responsibility. It's um, a slower career progression. And for me, I naturally decided, well, I want the progression. So I went in as a shift manager in Coles. Fast forward two years, um, I and wanted the next progression. Coles uh, currently has a con- uh, Linfox currently has a support. So, yeah, Linfox is the transport provider for Coles. Yep. So Coles engage a truck company to do their transport. So I was overseeing one shift. So there was an AM shift, a PM shift. So I was in charge of the AM shift of all the drivers, all the operation. I had an allocator that worked for me that did all the admin related tasks. And I oversaw all the drivers, dealt with the unions, et cetera, on my shift. I was doing that for two years. My career had plateaued. Um, and then I... Um, was looking for progression and there weren't really many opportunities at Linfox. So um, from my wider network, I was introduced um, and offered a position at Toll in their Palletize Express business, which was a warehousing role, PM terminal manager. Um, Now for me wanting my progression, I took the risk and decided to leave Linfox to go to another company. So Toll was Linfox's biggest competitor in Australia. I had left them to go to Toll to a completely different organisation, not knowing anyone there, not having any relationships and starting again in my network. That was very difficult, a highly unionised workforce, but the key mantra I kept is people. We weren't performing well financially, um, we had many challenges with systems, etc. But my mantra I instilled in my team and all the teams I lead today is, and this is what I said to them, if you don't pull up your socks, there's going to be nothing left. And, and, and I know I'll use this, this joke of an analogy. I said, guys, you guys are shaking the trees and there's no lemons left. It's done. You know, there, there is... No overtime left. And I wound back all the overtime, um, all the casuals, um, and I brought the financials down. Difficult conversations with the team. 
but I made it a shared objective. I made it run home true to them. That if this didn't happen, jobs would be started to be lost. I could have easily made people redundant. I didn't do that, George. I could have kicked out the last person that come on board, you know, last in, first out. I didn't do that. You know, I cared about the wider good. You know, everyone can pull up their socks, cut back the overtime, spread the pain. And we did that. And one problem, I didn't like the PM hours. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so I left to go to CHEP, the pallet company. So CHEP is a pallet company in, and I work in their logistics arm. Um, I oversee all of their logistics operations in Australia, um, which includes trucks going across both locally, interstate, um, along with a little bit of international forwarding. Um, and it's definitely pushed me out of my comfort zone to the point where I have about 30 different carriers, as large as a Linfox or as Toll working for me, and as small as a mum and dad carrier, where the dad is a driver, the mum does the books, and the daughter answers the phones. So I have small to big. And it's very challenging with the financials, the scale of the network, et cetera. But if I stepped into that role out of uni, I would not be good at it, hands up. But I think that's where um, I do want to start to get into um, some practical tips because I would talk all day about myself. That would definitely be after the break, Robbie. Here. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, what I'll do is just, um, George, um, in closing before we have the break, is the break at 8.30? Is that right? So before we have the break, just from me, um, I think the key is um, I wouldn't have gotten where I am um, without constant reflection, constant, um, you know, discussions like this with people like yourselves, George. So, yeah, that's my main message from the first half. Um, and then from that reflection, I'll share my practical tips in the next half. Um, but um, any questions from yourself, George, before I go into the, the break? It's just, it's just saying it's beautifully put how you show the progression of your career. And it, it's remarkable how moments where your manager pulled you up and, and, and put things to you as a young person, it makes an impression on you and it sort of provides that guiding principle for your career. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about your ethical approach when it comes to working. Uh, what, what role does ethics play in everyday work and being ethical? Like, I mean, instead of getting rid of people or treating people a certain way, I know you fall under a lot of pressure sometimes at work. How do you maintain that ethical approach and, and that Christ-like approach? For me, two things. One, there's people on the other end. My decision affects someone else and that person has a family and that person is an individual. They're not a number. Every role I've had, I've treated people as people. I might have pulled them up about a COR breach, a safety incident, but as I said to them in that example, if I don't pull you up and you have an accident tomorrow, that's on me for not pulling you up. You know, I'm here protecting someone else on the road. I'm here protecting you. I'm making sure you go home safely to your family. 
The same goes for work. You know, I could easily say, you know, we're going to fire 10 people. You know, I think it's better we spread the pain because of the people involved. Um, and the last thing is, is the bigger picture in terms of um, anytime you have power, you can't abuse it. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm always adamant. You know, whenever I have, you know, a managerial role, it's not for me to abuse. I have the responsibility in that, in the people that I lead, the operation that I've got, the financials that I'm responsible for, that is not to be abused. It's to be respected because, you know, Brambles is owned by mum and dads. It's owned by shareholders. It's not my money to waste. It's someone else's. And I'm instilled and fortunate enough to be chosen to be able to manage it um, for the benefits of the owners. And I treat that in every single role I've held where it's a responsibility not to be abused. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you as a shareholder or anyone as an owner would expect that of their people. Just as if I owned a corner shop, I wouldn't want my people, you know, giving all their friends a free coffee. You know, it's the same mantra, be it a small business or a big one. And I hope everyone can have that in their lives and their jobs. Um, and that's why I say any job is a vocation, not a sentence. Exactly. I mean, that was so beautifully put. And now we'll take a break before we open the line for any questions. We, you can't call in this week with any questions. You'll have to email through at thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com. That is thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com. Or you can post your questions here in the YouTube live here that we have. And so stay tuned. We'll be back shortly. My name is Father Damon Seifer. I'm a member of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, which is the Latin Mass Order. Our order has been ministering to the faithful in Western Sydney uh, for about 20 years now. But we think it's time for us to find our own place, to be able to build our own church. So we're really encouraging people to make donations, perhaps even dedicated to monthly donations, so that we can forge to take on perhaps a mortgage for this great endeavour. So we would like to, in the long term, build a traditional church for the celebration of the traditional liturgy in the Latin Rite. We would encourage you to think about this, to pray about this, and see if God is calling you to uh, commit to helping us with this great endeavour to build a new church for Western Sydney. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manassa, here as we equip you with practical solutions to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today. For those men wanting to make their rite of passage into manhood, join my exclusive Rite of Manhood podcast on therightofmanhood.com. That is therightofmanhood.com. And now we have an open line through email, not through the phone, through email at thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com. So you can post your questions here at thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com and we'll have Robert answer them for you here live. And we're continuing our discussion regarding the workplace and, and finding holiness in your workplace and, and, and sanctifying work and doing a great job. As, as Robert explained his career progression, the importance and the approach that he takes in his everyday life, in his work. And I just want to start off by quite, um, reading from, continuing from reading through St. Jose Maria Escrivá, the founder of the Prelature of Opus Dei. And he says this, and I quote, 
When you bring order into your life, your time will multiply. And then you'll be able to give God more glory by working more in his service. I mean, such tremendous words. And he even continues to say, and I quote, you really do not need to make an effort to put your shoulder to the wheel. For all that, you should put your professional interests in their place. They're only a means to an end. It can never be regarded in any way as if they were the basic thing. I mean, tremendous words here from St. Maria Escriva, the patron of ordinary life and of sanctification of work. I mean, it's, it's just important work that we're doing here uh, in our everyday lives and sanctifying our everyday lives to doing a great job and offering up that work for the glory of God. And now we're going to continue through now through our three practical tools that we're going to go into on doing a great job, progressing in your career, or if you own a business to work better. So Robert's going to enlighten us here. It's time to take the tools out of the toolbox. Robert, are we right. ready? Yep, I'm ready. Um, let's quickly go through them. Um, and for me, this is what has worked for me and um, how I instill in others with my mentoring. But the first one is risk. In anyone's business, personal life, career, it's about taking risk for reward. Now, in my whole career, as you would have heard from what I've mentioned, I've moved from job to job to job to job. So I've taken risk in moving from Linfox to Toll, from Toll to Chep. Now I could move and not be suitable, you know, and be let off in probation. So in all my career, I would not be where I am now, a national manager of a multi-million dollar operation, if I didn't take risk. Within five years of entering full-time work, I'm where I am today. The only reason I am here today is because I took risk, moving from job to job, learning and challenging myself. I have not once in my career stood back and be like, I'm bored. No. Um, and I think, in, in my view, if you don't put your hand up, if you don't chase and, and take the risk, um, it won't come knocking. And it, the same goes for your life. Um, and I won't go into the ethics side of it, George, but it's the same as a small business. You know, if you don't take a risk, oh, once you've opened another shop in another suburb, now, what if I um, get another investment you know, property? It's all about risk. And the keys to be calculated. And I was calculated by working for organizations that met what I was looking for for a company, their values. Did they care about safety? Do they care about their people? Do they care about development? There's still a checklist, but in the risk-taking it's important to be calculated in when you take risk. You don't go to the stock market and buy shares in any random company. Yeah. You're calculated. One point I need to make, George, and I don't want this perceived the wrong way. From my readings, from my experience in my career, I found females have found tended to not be in managerial roles. 
not by virtue of me. I'm just going through my perception because naturally they do not take as much risk as men yes. because they're supporting a family. It was just something now, I don't want this perceived as me being misogynistic. I'm just saying that is part of the reason. As bad as it sounds, Gordon Peterson mentioned that it's not simply just women are being given those roles. It's women on a natural level have inclined recently to take that risk. And that's why they haven't, uh, some of the aspects haven't climbed the ladder. Correct. And if I waited, I'll be still working at Woolworths at the Tellers. So that's my learning on that point, George. Um, But um, for me, for many people listening, they would think that well, uh, th- there's a lot of fear about moving from job to job. I mean, many young people today would would rather just stay in the same place and 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 have the same role. But uh, what intrigues me about your story is that you 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 were never bored one day. You always wanted that sense of progression, that growth, and it was organic. It's not as if it was rushed or. Or, or, or inorganic it was actually very organic where you got to a level where your skill set was stagnant over a period of time and then you felt the need to expand yourself within a more timely fashion and I call that efficiency uh, in your career so uh, for those out there who might be hesitant what, what would you say to those out there who might be hesitant might be in a role they've done well they've learned everything there they want to grow there might not be opportunities but they may have to actually leave that particular job because it's a lot of the time you can't progress through the same organization in the same way in many times many times there are many times there isn't depends on your at the time at the time frame of the company uh, if there were opportunities available or if there was an expansion um but so sometimes my- you just need to change ships and, and how do you make that my, knowing that it could set you on a course of... So um, my, my guidance is this to anyone. Why do you like working in that company? Is it your manager? Is it the company's branding? Is it where the office is? Is it the job that you do? Is it the people that you work with, colleagues? You know, the same as an airline. Why would you choose Qantas over Virgin, over... Philippines Airlines, you know, you might like flying on the same one. Doesn't mean the other one can't be better. So I always instilled in myself, the grass may be greener in the other camp. It may not be, but I don't know unless I try. And I never burnt a bridge anywhere, moving from organization to organization. I always said, you know what? I want a challenge. So I took the challenge didn't burn the bridge. They said, you know what, if you want to come back, you can. And I took the risk, but I looked for what I liked in an organization, development, mentorship, career, um, task, responsibilities, location, same as an airline. You're like, oh, I want recline. I want the leg room. I want the meal. I want to be able to put a bag on. Other people, they don't want all of that. So the same as if you choose to change carriers the same as a job you know it's like the same as a house if you go to purchase a house you have specs you know some people might want certain things others want an apartment you have to know 
the specs that you want exactly so you can only from an employer yourself and and, and, and what you want that's the key to as i said reflecting reflect on what do you look for and then go for that with an organization and that that does come into my next tips um but i hope that does answer it and uh, that does fall into the next tips as to how i took that risk okay okay so the next one food. the next one is to have a plan there's no point saying I'm going to take a risk if you don't have a plan. You have to know where you, where do you want to get to. So if we start here in the bottom corner of the screen, and I want to get to up to here, you have to know how you're going to get to the up to there. There's one thing to leave your job, but if you don't have another role planned, if you don't have um, progression, and what is the next progression? What skills do you need to know to be able to do that role? What development do you need for that? Very, very early on, I learned, well, I can't go from a graduate to an operations manager without doing the bits in between. Now, if I step into the operations manager, I won't know what the people below me do. So I've gone through all the layers. And the key is having a plan of where you want to get to. Now, that it, it still comes back to the original truth that I mentioned. If you don't reflect on what you want in your career, how do you know where you're going to go? You might reflect, no, I'm happy doing this. And there is nothing wrong with that. But you might reflect, well, I want more in my life. I want to do more. I want to take risks. I want more money. I want more responsibility. I want to lead more people. And there is danger in, in chasing money. I want you to address that. For some people who may look at a role just because of its money, we can all get infatuated with the idea of getting paid more. You know, I have myself, you know, and many of us do. Of course, we want to get paid. But can you address that slightly regarding motivation just, just with more money? But maybe there might not be progression, might not be suitable for you. Um, what's a way to sort of avoid infatuation with money and focus on the why aspect? So for me, as I said, and I've said it multiple times, a job is not a sentence. And if you treat a job as a commodity, as a, a means to get an income, well, you're treating the, the job as a commodity. It's not a vocation. It's not, you know, something you like or don't like. You, it just becomes something that is not what a job is meant to be. And for anyone that works for the coin, in my view, they've sold their soul. And that's just my opinion, George, but in my view, you spend more time in work than you do with your families. If you look at your hours of the day, sleep, you know, your meals, your time in work is most of your day. And we only get in our life why waste it in a sentence instead of a, a journey a vocation where you can make a difference and that's my um advice to anyone on this call is i've never chased um the dollar i could have become a truck driver and earn the same i'm earning today but <laughs> i didn't because i wanted to make a difference in my life in the jobs that i hold um, and for me, that comes into my third um, point, George, which is mentorship. 
Now, in my whole career, I would not have coped if it weren't for mentors and support. Now, I've had support from formal mentors. So at Linfox, I had an, an actual mentor in the organization. I also had my managers as a mentor. I had people around me, yourself, other friends, who provided me that support network. Now, what do I mean by support? It's talking about shared problems, brainstorming solutions, guidance on career, guidance on risk, guidance on your career plan. And it's about having that elder, that person looking over you to support you in the right direction. It's the same in your spiritual life. You have a spiritual director. You know, the same as um, your health life. You know, you have a doctor, you know, to support yeah. your health. Yeah. Um, in my view, it is crucial. You have a mentor to support you, to call on, to seek advice, to brainstorm off. You know, you might share an idea and be like, you know what, Robert, I tried that. It didn't work. Or he's like, I tried that, but it might work for you. Um, and this, I haven't taken all of this and not given back either. In my role, I then support others below me, other people that I identify as wanting that support and needing it. So I'm, Men and mentored by others and I also mentor people and it's my way of you know receiving it and giving the, the mentorship also and the key 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 point as to why is feedback in all our lives our vocations in our jobs the key is to have the feedback and to give it also if you don't know where you can improve or where you need to develop in you'll never work um, improve in that area because that area is um, a blind spot in our lives they can see these things that we cannot yeah we get so hell-bent on the title on the pay that we lose track on where we need to work on my manager might identify areas I'm good at that I didn't realize so that's the blind spot in our lives um, and by you giving feedback in your direction, you're sharing about your facade, what, what you hide from others, what you feel like you're not good at. And that's important also. And that, that comes down to the other mantra that I've been echoing the whole way through is the reflection on your career and what you're not good at, but also receiving what you are good at. So it's both ways. You can't just focus on the positive. You have to look at the negative too. Exactly. So exactly. for me... Early on in my career, I was given the feedback that I wasn't overly personal and that there were people at the other end. And I've now taken that in my stride and I include that in my mantra day to day with people. Um, but they're my free practical tips. The, the last one is a bonus, George. I just want to give a bonus. Is that okay? Um, just cool. a quick one minute one. And, and the key in ending yeah, is no. being true to your values what do i mean by this and it is being a manager is not for everyone i have difficult conversations about what people are good at what people aren't good at about financials about people not performing that is not for everyone and it's about reflecting 
on your inner self around what do you want to do? What are you good at? What are your weaknesses? So don't measure yourself against me. Don't measure yourself against your neighbor because you are yourself and you're your own destiny. And, and that's my closing message, George. But um, if you have any other questions or anyone else on the line, but I hope it, um, yeah, it's been good sharing a few of these practical tips, George, um, to say the least. Uh, we have uh, we just received an email here from Joshua through an email, and Joshua asks uh, has a question for Robert. Uh, you said women don't end up in upper management roles because they don't take risk. Is it not the case that women actually don't take risk because there are institutional barriers preventing them from doing so? That's a very good question. Would more likely pursue managerial roles if childcare was made free since they wouldn't put their career on hold for years before returning to the workforce. Yeah. So that's from Josh. There, was, very much there was more than one point made there, but I'll try to answer all of them. So one, I did respect the fact that mothers care for their children by virtue of the, the normalcies of family, George. I respect that. I agree there are structural barriers to childcare. Um, it's very expensive. Not everyone can rely on family network to support their children. That is institutional problems. Second to that, in terms of organizational challenges, I agree there are some organizations that treat managerial roles as a boys club as a job for a mate. But me as a leader and the companies I work for I keep true to the virtues that a managerial role, a job of power is one that is a vocation and not to be abused. So that's why I say anyone that works for a company or has the view that they can abuse their power by giving a job for a mate, treating it like a boys club, not giving women an opportunity, that is not an organization to work for. And I've never worked for one that does treat it like that. In all my career, I can list many females I've worked for that I have looked up to and have been the best leaders I've had. Um, Debbie Reich at Lynn Fox, Tanya McMahon at um, ASM, another company I worked for. Big shout out. Yeah, it's, um, that's my answer. And Josh, I hope that answers for you. Um, uh, in my personal experience in the workplace, I mean, I, women, especially in construction, I mean, in, in project planning and project management, have done tremendous jobs. I mean, I actually ha had a mentor in my first workplace that actually showed me some key areas for my development that was a female. I think women do great work. I think it's very much the circumstance that individuals might find themselves. And, um, and we thank Josh for his question there. And uh, I have a question myself here. Regarding mentorship, how should someone perceive mentorship? Should they look at mentorship, a mentor as someone who they might take blind obedience from? Should it be something where you need to, to, to evaluate with several people? Because, I mean, everybody has their opinion. Everybody has their ideas. Or should you – what are some guidelines for getting a mentor? So, for me, there's they boundaries be or there's rules to a mentor, you know, or I don't know if they're spoken or not. One is you, you should never go to a mentor looking to get the answer you're looking for. 
You shouldn't go to them to justify an opinion, a notion, an argument you've already made up in your mind because you're seeking advice when you already have your own preconceived idea. That's a big no-no. The other one is that it's important to find people that you can trust, that you can speak openly to. There's no point seeking a mentor that doesn't care about you and that you don't trust. So trust and don't abuse it either. So they're the, they're the main ones from me, George. And I think it is difficult for those of you that struggle and, and may not have that in your organisation. It doesn't need to be in, in your organisation. It can be a friend, uh, a religious leader. It can be, you know, someone in your social media following. It can be anyone. Um, a lot of people like to talk about their careers because that's where they spend most of their time. So you'd be surprised how many people are willing to talk about it and give practical tips about what has and hasn't worked for them in their career. So I hope that answers for anyone. And I do know there are people that do struggle with having the ability to source a mentor for that reason. So there are a few practical tips for me around the mentorship and some rules around. I think personally, a few guidelines for mentors possibly could be that maybe they don't have an emotional investment in your decisions. I think we need to isolate that. That's it's very important. Like for instance, if you would have your possibly your father as a career mentor, I'm sure uh, your, your parents would be great sources of advice. But as an official mentor, they may have an emotional attachment to you working in a certain place. I know my mother would obviously always recommend to work somewhere close to home, <laughs> but it may not be a great career decision in that respect. So it's always remove someone who may have an emotional investment in your career decision, someone who is detached from that, who may have experience in that respect. I, I wouldn't seek out advice from somebody who hasn't done it themselves. Like for instance, yourself, Robert, uh, you, you, you've done this, you've been there, you've seen it. You know, someone who come to you on a similar journey, whether they're in the same uh, sector or not, and they can actually seek advice from you. Uh, regarding it because you've actually done it so i think the two guidelines should be you always isolate someone that may that may have an emotional investment in your decisions and second is find someone who's actually done it uh, who practices what they preach in their workplace in their career progression i've got one george that is a common question i get and it is how do you deal with stress i was just That's important in career so I would ask it because I know a lot of people might be thinking it and, and may not have asked it. But for me, um, the way I deal with stress is to celebrate the small wins. I might not have achieved my career goal. I might not have achieved my continuous improvement target, but I celebrate every little milestone, even every day at the work. You know, I finish the day, you know what? How good is that? You know, I've got everything done that I wanted to get done. I might not have got it all done, but I celebrate the small wins. And it's about being overly positive, but not being negative, pessimistic on your life and your career, because it will spiral um, downwards. Um, but I had one last, another question come through to me, George. Is that okay if I go through that yeah, one? Yeah, no this problem. From, from David. There we he go. said, to what extent has your circle of friends influenced your career decisions or helped you cope with the stress of holding the position you hold? That's a very good question. Now, for me, I'm someone that tends sometimes to rant or, you know, talk about work or talk about problems I've got 
I think the key is support. My whole friendship circle have provided support, advice, guidance. And they've also been very good to brainstorm ideas with. I believe friends are even better than, a, not better than, but another support to a mentor, but because they know you on a personal level, they know what you're good at, what you're not good at. And the friends around me have greatly supported me, George, yourself included. Um, so I am grateful to all the friends that I've got um, who have supported me. Um, and I believe it's about, we're on all on this journey together. And I hope that I can support others to have the same journey as I have in found, finding a job, a career that I love. Um, and about sharing my vocation to work with others. So I hope I can pass on to others the same way others have supported me. Um, and I hope this has helped. Um, yeah, that's, that's it. And the I feel that inspired already to get back to the job and it's just been absolutely supportive. We'll definitely have you on again for another episode to speak about more career progression. Uh, there's a lot to do, especially after COVID, now everybody going back, there's going to be a big boom. I think people need are in need of hearing this to get back to work. We have a rollout plan now to get back into our workplaces and get out there more to, to get the economy up and uh, running again. And I thank you very much for inspiring people here uh, live on air uh, about how they can become better in their career or may even make the, they might even make decisions or think about or can contemplate uh, uh, leveling up their career and challenging themselves. You're not afraid to challenge yourself and uh, definitely that's something that's inspired me personally. I'm sure it inspired many other people. So thank you for being with me on tonight, Robert. Uh, thank you, George, for the opportunity. I hope everyone's learned a bit, learned a bit about myself. Um, and I hope um, all of you can apply the practical tips to your own lives. But um, I hope you've all enjoyed. You've been a great host and in good company this evening, George. Thank you for the opportunity to present. Um, and should anyone, um, want to reach out i'm an open door Where for anyone contact you if uh, you want to take any questions or uh, you they may require mentorship if yeah definitely definitely um, anyone can reach out i'm happy to support in any way shape or form i'm here to support all those around me in their um, vocation in their workplaces and if you want to get in contact with robert uh, you're able to email us at the catholic toolbox at gmail.com that is the catholic toolbox at gmail.com and we'll put you in contact with Robert uh, if you have any questions or require any support in that regard. So don't forget to subscribe to the Catholic Toolbox podcast. This episode will be available like every other episode on our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts on. So thank you for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manassa. Until next week, God bless, take care and take cash. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says.
Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.